I'm Kafer Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Vijay Kurinamurthy, who is the Field Chief Technology Officer at Scale AI, where he works to democratize the capabilities of generative AI and large language models, and partners with large model providers, governments, and Fortune 500 companies. Prior to Scale, Vijay was a Director of Engineering at Apple and Google, where he worked on applications of AI for personalizing human interfaces. Vijay was also an early employee at YouTube, and led search and discovery, as well as collaborations with media, entertainment, and advertising agencies. He's the co-founder and CEO of Nom Labs, a community for food lovers to create, share, and watch their favorite stories in real time, and co-founder of Avos Systems. Thank you so much, Vijay, for joining us today. We're so excited to talk with you. Thank you, Miriam. Super excited to chat about Skills work on Trusted AI. Well, we want to hear more, but before we get into Scale's work, we want to hear about your journey in this field. Vijay, how did you first become interested in AI and responsible AI in particular? Thank you. Love to talk about my journey. You know, my route to Scale AI is actually a really interesting one, given that I first started using and playing with machine learning and neural networks all the way back in the 90s, you know, back when there was what was called the AI winter, where people thought that there was a lot of really exciting things that could be done with AI, but no one had really demonstrated that you could build a neural network, have it do something useful, actually have it contribute to science in a meaningful way. And at the time, I was just fascinated by the idea of neural networks, that you could build a computer program that tries to think the way that we human beings think. And you could learn from biology and all these other fields that as a high school student, as an undergraduate student, I just found incredibly fascinating. So I first built my first kind of toy neural network bottle back in 1998, and, and I've been bit by the bug ever since. Just the ability to build a piece of software that can actually learn and grow and that you can train over time is just incredibly powerful technique that, that's so much fun to learn about and, and to play with. So since then, you know, I, I've worked in, in tech here in San Francisco for a long time. I was an early employee at YouTube. And really for us, machine learning meant the ability to help people understand the world around them and keep them engaged on our site and also help them understand how they could be creators of their own. You know, what sort of videos would you want to upload as a user if you're one of the millions of people that came to YouTube on any given day? And how would you share your story and how would you be discovered on the site? We found that telling users about how search worked and how recommended videos worked ended up being incredibly important to help them understand the connections we were making among all these different aspects of human experience. And since then, you know, I spent time at Apple also working on machine learning as it applies to all sorts of media and other experiences people have on their devices and the way to connect experiences that you might have on an Apple Watch together with your iPhone, together with everything else that's in the Apple ecosystem. So for me, that was a really great introduction to how data can be incorporated as part of the AI lifecycle and the real value that that data gives as part of this technique. So Scale AI has really been a pioneer on using data and being data first in how we think about AI. And we really pioneered the ability to look at a set of data and think about what's next. Think about the next safety milestone that a researcher might want to hit in order to build a self-driving car that could actually work on the streets of San Francisco. 
or thinking about what it takes to actually build a large language model that a high schooler might want to chat with and ask a question about biology or chemistry and get an accurate answer back. That question about what's next with data has always been kind of our motivating force, and it's really what's carried us through to this current generation of generative AI and, and all the excitement that's happened there. Well, it must be particularly exciting to have everyone now excited about this conversation and this capability that you've been excited about for some time now. And it's now front and center for all to ask questions, try to understand. And with your expertise, not only in generative AI, but in safety and generative AI, we'd love to have you explain to our listeners, you talk about at Scale AI, safely unlocking the value of AI. So what what does that mean? What, what are the values that you're trying to unlock? How do you decide what safety should look like? What's the appropriate level and how do you achieve that? This is really one of the great questions of our time is how do we think about human values and how do we incorporate them into the technology that we're building in a way that we can all understand as a society how we made those decisions and what the impact of those decisions are on the technology that's gonna end up transforming our lives and the lives of our children and their children for, for years to come. So for us to start, we really think about this as being an open and transparent process. And we've been fortunate at Scale AI to work with governments like the Biden-Harris administration, I'm working with the EU and the UK governments as well, I'm thinking through ways where we can talk about how models are trained and how they're fine-tuned and how you can go further and test and evaluate those models so that you understand what you're really asking of model providers as they think about releasing a new model onto the public. So the key pillar of this is test and evaluation, the ability to ask a model questions where the model may answer in a way that's unexpected or the model may actually have a hallucination in the response. And hallucination is a technical term we're using, which refers to models that sometimes give outputs that are non-factual or where there might even be a lie in the model. The really tricky thing about hallucinations with large language models is you can spend a lot of time trying to twist the logic that the model has and how it thinks about a problem so that the model gives an answer that's not correct but explains it in a way that carries forward all that thinking and reasoning, is able to convincingly tell a human being something that's not true is actually true. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking through how you can expose that through test and evaluation as well. There are all sorts of other harms that these models can do that we need to be thinking about as a democratic society. You know, ways to build explosives or ways to hack into government websites. All of those could potentially be capabilities that a bad actor could try to get out of a model. And so test and evaluation is this key pillar of how you understand how models perform today and ways in which they can be more secure, more trusted, and we avoid the sort of societal impact that could be really negative if we didn't do that, that test and evaluation to understand the, these capabilities and harms. That's terrific. And can you tell us more about the the standards that you use? Are you learning from you know the NIST framework? Are there other places where people can learn from the models, the standards that you're finding the most reliable or that they should be avoiding? Yeah, the standards are an incredibly important part of this discussion in that they set up a taxonomy of how you understand what the models are capable of and what the harms can be. And it's really those two sides of the equation that's important. On the capability side, you have models that can write code and they can do things that could be executed by anyone that's out there and potentially cause a lot of harm in the process of executing that code. You also have some models that are capable of looking at images and video for the first time. And there are all sorts of new capabilities they have to talk about those images or even explain their answer in a visual format that models might not have had a year ago. 
We also have models that can chat through voice or imitate users, what are called deep fakes. And so thinking about the capabilities of those models is really important as well. The other side of the equation are the real harms that can happen. And the taxonomy that we need is understanding, as a society, which harms do we really value as things that, that we need to mitigate at all costs? You know, For example, harms that could have immediate impact on all of us, like supporting the construction of explosives or helping people that might have um, certain mental illnesses kind of access resources that, that they need to have or else lead them down the wrong path and not get access to those resources. Those sort of things can cause an immediate impact to society and, and are really important for us to evaluate. On the other category of harms, there are things that are important but maybe aren't top of mind. And these could be things like understanding how the model was trained or leaking some internal information about the provider. It's still important for the model providers to understand those harms and understand where they sit in the taxonomy, but maybe they don't fall to the level of uh, something that causes a democratic impact to all of us. So we really think these standards can help all of us understand what's happening on the capabilities side and how those capabilities are evolving every year. And really on the harm side, how you rank those harms and how you think about the major harms versus the minor harms of how these models work. So that you can focus on the ones that are really important to society and get really good coverage of how you evaluate how models do on those use cases. And not necessarily over-index on harms that are important to acknowledge, but may not have that immediate impact on society that we need to mitigate right away. Well, and one of the reasons I was particularly excited to speak with you is because we often have conversations about the innovations that are possible. There's so much excitement in thinking about what is possible with AI, with generative AI, how businesses, how people can really thrive if used appropriately. But at the same time, we need to be thinking about the risks. And those are usually a different set of conversations we have. What are the harms? What are the safeguards? So I love in this conversation that we're able to hear both, uh, such deep thought on both from you. So when you're talking with businesses, what do you think are some of the best use cases you've seen or expect to see in how businesses are improving their performance or the services they're able to offer with generative AI? And in the same vein, what do you think are, are some of the ways that they should be careful? What, what's the advice you give to large and small businesses who want to take advantage of these capabilities? It, it is crazy to think that ChatGPT was only released about this time last year because this year has just been a breakneck year for how enterprises of all sizes have started to think about AI in a new way and how they've started to do planning and figuring out the use cases that they really want to drive for this year as well as the, the beginning of next year. So we've been part of that journey with a number of Fortune 500 companies over the course of the year and we have a really unique perspective in seeing what's worked and what's helped those companies accelerate their roadmap and what sort of announcements have they made that have really resonated with partners and with the marketplace and with everyone that they're working on in this ecosystem. So if you rewind all the way back to Q1, pretty much every Fortune 500 company was thinking about some sort of demo around generative AI, and they were presenting it to the board of directors, to leadership, oftentimes demos that were a little bit just kind of pie in the sky. So a great example might be building like an AI avatar travel agent, if you're a travel agent site. That might be an amazing demo to show the board of directors, but it wasn't yet connected to a product roadmap and a realistic plan of how you'd go about building that AI avatar. And also the ROI and the impact that that sort of release could have. Is this something that's really top of mind for a customer that's coming to your website or your app? Or is it something that's a nice to have that they would find really interesting and quirky but wouldn't necessarily drive a new line of business for that company? So if you now move forward to Q3 and Q4, a lot of the teams that have been really forward thinking have spent that time to hone in on the use cases that actually do have really high ROI for these companies. 
And the really interesting thing is a lot of those use cases aren't necessarily consumer facing. It's not just adding a new feature into your app that a customer can use. It's actually a lot of backend facing use cases as well. So we've ended up working with a bunch of companies that are in regulated industries, for example, banking, finance, healthcare, insurance, legal and tax advice. These are industries where there's a lot happening on the back end to help workers do their job and understand their roles in the company and learn from all this experience that these companies have built up over 20 or 30 years of operating that really can be enabled by generative AI to just transform those roles and those careers. So a great example that I give is for wealth advisors at a financial services firm. There are all sorts of folks that are just starting off as first-time wealth advisors into that role this year. And they, in the past, would have sat down in a room with a more senior, experienced wealth advisor, sat in on a range of customer calls, and gotten real-time feedback from someone that's been in that role for an extended period of time, and also has just gone above and beyond on so many customer calls that they know what it takes to really surprise and delight a customer. You know, being able to talk to someone that's just about to retire about the impact of rising interest rates on their portfolio in a way that really just eliminated a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty that might have been on the part of that, that, that wealth advisory customer. Today, that new person in the role doesn't get to sit physically in the room with a mentor and hear and learn from that experience. And so we're really seeing this incredible use of generative AI to help that individual understand ideas and options about how you can talk to a customer about data, how you can talk about how that portfolio performed in the last quarter and connect that with research reports or what's happening in the market right now in a way that feels kind and helpful and respectful of who that customer really is as a person. And hopefully generative AI can help us all understand how we can do our roles better. It can help us understand insights in real time, help us understand the tone of voice that we should be talking to each other in a way that reflects the ways that we've all learned as human beings is, is actually helpful to other human beings. And, and hopefully help people understand what they could be doing in the next 10 or 20 years of their role as they learn from all these other individuals. And, and the models get better and understand what it takes to really excel in some of these roles too. Well, and, and I notice in your answer, you're you're talking about the human role. And often lost in the conversations about AI is, is that important human touch that you're referencing. I spoke at a hotel summit this morning on, on law and AI. And really they're talking about in the excitement of generative AI, you know, when you come into a hotel, it's it's that human touch that would be so hard to replace where people have an understanding of and can put you at ease in a way that it would be hard for an AI program system to replicate. And I know that's something that you emphasize, the importance of human involvement and oversight in AI. And I'm curious if you could share more about how you think humans fit into the AI solutions that you're supporting and developing. And what role do you see humans playing in AI decision-making today and going forward? First, I just want to say both those examples you gave of law and AI and checking into a hotel are both examples that are near and dear to my heart that we've been working on for the last couple of months here at scale. And, and two use cases that show the human element of how you incorporate AI into a job playing a really key role in, in how you help individuals. So on the, the law side, we are seeing a huge range of using generative AI to understand documents and contractual law and, and contracts as they're written in a brand new way that helps human beings really get the right insights at the right moment out of documents as they're written. So on the contract side, in some of the industries that we're in, logistics and shipping, contracts can be incredibly long and really detailed and often have a lot of cultural specifics. You know, if you think if you're shipping a package to Japan and maybe further on to Korea, there's a lot of cultural nuances in how those contracts are written and how those documents are written that can be very difficult for someone sitting here in San Francisco to really understand at a detailed nuance level. 
And so the ways in which generative AI is being used is to give people insights at the right moment on these incredibly complicated documents so that they can leverage that insight as the document's being drafted and hopefully give feedback earlier on the process rather than the slog of the very end of the document going through a lot of red lines and going through a lot of back and forth because you, you didn't incorporate it earlier in the drafting process. So that's been an incredibly important use case in law where you're actually helping a human being who is struggling to understand all this cultural context and all this nuance around how contracts have historically been written at the right moment to avoid you know, kind of holding up the pipeline down the end. And they can really see the value of having that happen early on. On, on the hotel side, I love that use case as well because we're spending a lot of time thinking about concierges and travel advisory. Our CEO, Alex Wang, is on the board of Expedia Group, and, and that's a great use case of where they have a variety of brands under the Expedia umbrella, all of which solve a different pain point for a traveler. You know, if you think about Hotels.com and VRBO and the different ways in which those interact, along with booking flights and other travel arrangements, it's super important for them to build this unified customer experience that understands that this traveler is maybe traveling solo and is in their 20s, whereas this other traveler is traveling with a two-year-old kid and maybe needs a crib at the other end of their room when they, they're arriving, and help the customer understand that you're evolving their travel experience, you're learning across multiple interactions that they might have had with multiple individuals or with the site itself, and then explain to that user, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And you should know, heads up, if you want to make any changes to your itinerary or your plan, I'm here to help you and I can do it in a really straightforward way. That kind of ability of generative AI to cut across these customer experience silos that have risen up over the years of all these different brands or aspects of the travel experience is really unique and it's something that I think is really powerful. And across the board for Fortune 500 companies, we're really seeing people think about organizational silos and these walls that have been set up around different parts of the organization in a new way, given you have this intelligence that can cut across all those data boundaries and talk to a customer directly about all the offerings that you have, rather than just one piece of that travel puzzle or one piece of that financial services puzzle. So that's applying the human element of how someone who can understand the bigger picture could be talking to someone that wasn't possible before that we're really excited about too. Yeah, it's exciting to think about the conversations you open up, the translations, whether it's in language or concept, as you say, the silos that you're breaking by this generative AI solution. But humans remain important, as you point out. One of the examples they showed this morning was asking about a conference and a summit. And it turns out it was a summit that didn't exist, but it gave a very thoughtful answer about the details of the summit and why it was such a successful summit that, you know, was a hallucination. And, you know, the humans in the loop are able to point out what is accurate and make sure to redirect it and, and refine the answers so that they are most effective and while breaking silos, keeping check on, on the information that is being shared. And I know a key part of that is transparency. And I know that's something that you think a lot about and are actively engaged in in a variety of different ways. And one of those ways is the public evaluation of AI systems that was put forward in the AI Village at DEF CON. And would love if you could share with us more about what is that public evaluation process? Is that something that should be a part of our systems going forward? Is this something that should be an ongoing effort? And, and what did you learn from participating in the initiative? Miriam, that's one of the best examples of a hallucination that could cause harm that I've heard recently. Telling someone there's a summit that doesn't exist and having them book travel to that summit in a hotel room, you could just consider the amount of confusion that that would call. 
And also, if you're sharing on social media about this, it's something you're really excited about attending. And it turned out it was just made up by LLM just for you. Um, that would be pretty frustrating as well. So that's exactly the sort of harm that we are trying to categorize as part of the DEF CON initiative that you mentioned. So this was a, a great experience that we've had over the summer that we're just getting our heads around the data from this experience. But it was organized at the DEF CON conference in Las Vegas, which is a, a longstanding, you know, kind of the, the, the world leader in security conferences. And folks there for many years have been thinking through all sorts of innovative, unique ways to break software at a core level. You know, ways where you could hack into a website or ways where you can get into a database and extract out information so that everyone can be open and transparent about the risks of software and understand the, the real vulnerabilities there. This year, for the first year, folks are starting to think about AI in a new way. And the fact that these models are now so much more capable than what software was possible to even think about doing even a year ago, that it's important that cybersecurity kind of pivot to some extent and start thinking about the capabilities of machine learning first and the outputs of these generative AI models as a core part of how you think about security as, as a holistic practice. So as part of this, we partnered with the White House's Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. And that's been an amazing partnership that we've had over the last couple of months to figure out exactly how we can work on um, policy aspects of what we do, technology policy specifically, as well as the, the open and transparent nature of how we talk about democratic harms of these models. Combining those two together ends up being really powerful. So you've got the world's best cybersecurity experts at DEF CON, and you've got a really interesting taxonomy of harms to society that these models could cause. And the coming together of the policy side and the technology side ends up being really, really powerful in, in this forum. So the ways in which we made this work was we invited a lot of these cybersecurity experts to think about a, a menu of harms and come up with really unique, innovative ways to try to trick the model into exposing that harm. So this could be tricking the model by talking about something that you know the model understands could be a biased question and shouldn't give a biased answer to a response to that question. For example, asking a question about an image of a bunch of people in the conference room and trying to trick the model into stating, well, the folks in this conference room are likely to be leaders or more successful because they're all men in the photo, something that reveals pretty clear bias on the part of the model. Um, by default, the models are pretty good at avoiding that kind of output, but you can trick the model by changing the image in certain ways. You can ask a question about the model with a caption in French or German or another language, and the model suddenly gets tricked into revealing some sort of bias that's been inherent in the trading data. And so we're trying to find ways where you can think about those techniques and then think about the outputs and do that in a way that everyone kind of understand ways in which these models can be further improved. So we're, we're coming through that data right now, and we're excited over the course of the year to share more on that with the Biden-Harris administration. And we've been sharing that feedback directly with the model providers as well, which is pretty much everyone working on a large language model that's going to be released in the next year, um, so that that feedback can be incorporated to the next generation models. We can make sure that kind of gender bias, racial bias, age bias is, is thought about it first and foremost before publicly releasing these models. Well, we can't wait to hear more about that as that information becomes available. But I also want to dig deeper. You've mentioned this work you're doing with the Biden-Harris administration. I know you've met with one of the stars of the administration, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, as well as the known star, Chief of Staff Jeff Zients, and other officials. You mentioned OSTP. And one of the fruits of those conversations is the voluntary AI commitments that you participated in. Can you share with our listeners you know, it's, it's not every tech company that wants to be working so deeply with administrations and with government officials. How did you decide that was a good use of your time? And how did you land on these commitments? Why are they meaningful? And, and what does it mean for your company to participate in these voluntary commitments? 
Well, for scale, we've been at the forefront of finding out the right partnerships between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., and folks that are experts in policy for, for a long time now. You know, our founder, Alex Wang, has been involved in thinking about programs at the Department of Defense and other defense agencies where AI is being incorporated to try to understand how we can adapt to new forms of conflict zones, how we can use satellite data in new ways, how we can think about the sort of technology that goes into self-driving in a new way that powers our capabilities and our defense capabilities. So we've been part of these discussions for a long time. What's new this year is the, the real power of these large language models is just coming to the forefront. And we're understanding how new capabilities like code execution can really impact the policy landscape and can also impact the roadmap for folks like the Department of Defense or the Air Force or other groups. So we've been leveraging some of those relationships and, and, and that knowledge that we have about how government operates and how policymakers first get their heads around a new technology and then think about incorporating it into roadmaps and discussion points and ways in which we can have an open conversation about the impact of technology to help drive this year and two years and three years of how we think about policy around large language models. So what you're seeing today are these voluntary commitments that the Biden-Harris administration and others have formulated. And the important thing about these commitments is they are an aspect of having open and transparent test and evaluation of models so that we can all understand how models are performing on all these different axes of harms as a society, rather than having just be kept within closed rooms and, and a discussion among policymakers without the public being involved at all. So you know, the example that we gave of DEF CON and our work with OSTP there, that was a great partnership where we thought about how we can responsibly publish information about the harms that's happening so that it's not always kept behind closed doors. And then we can get public feedback on harms that might actually be more important to think about. For example, revealing personally identifiable information or revealing geographic misinformation, claiming a building exists when it doesn't exist. We can all talk as a society about the real impact of any one of those harms and ways in which models should really try to refuse to answer questions that may cause harms or, or pivot their responses in a way to help drive that. So I, I think as policymakers understand not just this kind of marriage of different harms and different techniques to expose those harms, but the mitigating aspects of what we can do and guardrails we can put in place around AI, then policymakers can be much more informed about how to incorporate those guardrails into discussions about the responsible release of AI and how to talk to the model providers and those adopting AI with the right kind of level of technology understanding to help them understand how those guardrails can be incorporated. So one technique that we use a lot involves what's called human feedback. And the full name of the technique is reinforcement learning with human feedback, which is, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it really means a way to train models to understand what human beings expect out of the outputs of the models, rather than what the model might have just seen in the training data that it was trained on. And we've really pushed this technique forward and helped policymakers understand the role of that technique and the ways in which you can use often experts in a given domain to give better feedback to the model. So a great example of this might be you know, a model that you want to avoid revealing a recipe for explosives. You can actually have an expert in chemistry that help the model understand when it should refuse to give an answer to the user or refuse to give an intermediate step given you know where this is going to lead. It's going to lead to something that's a pretty dangerous output of the model. So we've been using human feedback for a long time now, and now expert feedback for these models is the next frontier of mitigating the, the possible harms of the model, and, and something that I think policymakers should understand when they talk to model providers about how to, to better incorporate those guardrails in the first place. Super interesting, and I'd love to dig a little deeper on this reference to regulation and guardrails. You know, in addition to the voluntary commitments, there's a lot of activity. When this episode comes out, we'll have had some exciting White House announcements. We will have had a UK AI safety summit. And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on what do you want to see from policymakers? For those listening to this 
episode, what would you advise them on how to approach this complex issue? What would be the guardrails you would most like to see that would be supporting your work or that would be across the board reinforcing the work that you do internally that you'd like to see your counterparts doing as well? And how would that look on the international level, knowing that your work has no legal boundaries in terms of how it's used in application? One key thing that we'd love policymakers to know about this year in particular is just how important expert feedback and human feedback is in order to understand what models are doing today and what they could be doing in the future. And really these techniques that we have to incorporate experts who might not be computer science experts, they might not be even that well-versed in technology, but having their insights and perspectives be incorporated back into how models perform ends up being very important to us. So the test and evaluation framework that we built that we're sharing with policymakers is really this pyramid of insight about how a model performs. And you can see at the base of the pyramid is work that we can automate, that we can do pretty quickly. And that's often where we're training a model to go and test other models. And those models might be trying to trick the model into revealing something that's harmful or hallucinating or doing something that's pretty negative. But the, the models have gotten really good at learning these techniques to try to trick other models. And so we're able to do that in an automated fashion and do it repeatedly throughout a day and try to see how a model's performing as new versions of that model are coming out. So that aspect of that we can, we can build as software and we can deploy that. And that software is incredibly valuable for everyone to use, regardless of how you're using a model or how you're training a model. But at the top of the pyramid, you have the really important aspect of expert feedback and human feedback that's the insightful aspect of what we do. And this is really understanding how new model capabilities create new avenues of attack, um, new harms that could come out, out of the model, or understanding a domain well enough to understand that a model might be giving hallucinations in tax advice or legal advice or something that would be pretty hard for the general public to understand when they just look at the model output. They don't have a background in tax or they're not a lawyer or they don't understand this domain pretty well. So that aspect of human insight being incorporated into this feedback loop ends up being a pretty critical part of the pyramid as we've built it up over the course of this year. So helping policymakers understand ways in which you can talk to model providers as well as enterprises that are incorporating this technology and as well as government partners about how they're performing on this pyramid and how they can move up the pyramid to get more value out of human insight as they're evaluating the models ends up being a pretty critical part of this. And as you think about cutting across nation boundaries as well and, and the impact that regulation in the EU and the UK and the US will have an outsized impact on the development of models for the next year, we are also seeing an increasing emphasis on thinking about how models can have better cultural awareness and better awareness of different languages around the world as being a key part of making the models more robust. So one key problem we see today is that you can have a model that has the right guardrails to avoid giving hallucinations in English but it turns out if you ask that model the same question in a language it hasn't seen as much training data on, for example, a question in German or French, or even a language where there isn't that much text on the internet, like Swahili or Zulu, the model will still give you an answer. It'll still try to answer you know, pretty much any question you ask, but it'll suddenly start to incorporate a lot of hallucinations and a lot of misinformation in the response that comes out there because it's been tricked into thinking a range of thought that it hasn't been normally trained on. So we're hoping to share that insight and really help people understand the role that this next phase of model are going to be released, need to understand languages at a really detailed level and, and the range of human experience that you get from understanding Japanese or Korean or another language really well that maybe you're not getting by just training a model on English. And hopefully that'll inform how regulators in, in other countries and around the world also think about models and how to avoid those similar harms to democratic societies surfacing up in Japanese or Korean or other languages as well.
so fascinating and important, even as a bridge to help with translation, let alone the technical details of, of misunderstanding in, in the translation, but, but just making it so much easier to communicate and understand the cultural pieces you're talking about, just, you know, really have my mind reeling on how challenging and critical it is to get that right. So I'd love to hear more on that. And I'd also love to hear more on the work you mentioned you're doing at the Department of Defense. I know you have an AI tool, Donovan, which is an AI decision platform being used in the armed forces. would love to hear about the tools that you're creating. What is the role of private companies in establishing and increasing government AI capabilities? And what are some of the geopolitical implications of maintaining this AI infrastructure or in the absence? since not keeping pace with what industry is providing. The scale Donovan is a perfect example of the sort of public-private partnerships that we should be pushing forward as this technology comes to the forefront and we all understand the capabilities here. So scale Donovan is really the first large language model generative AI-enabled capabilities that has been able to be deployed in classified environments using data that is really secure data that our government uses in order to do planning around mission objectives. Often there are sometimes really critical missions that we're out there really just trying new techniques to try to solve. A great example of this might be recognizing fishing boats that are in the Pacific Ocean that are actually illegal fishing boats where no one's authorized that boat to go and hunt Pacific tuna or another endangered stock of fish. This is a big problem today where if you look at mapping data, you'll see all sorts of pings on that data every so often where there's a boat that shouldn't be there and it's a pretty large boat and it's pretty clear it's doing fishing, but people don't realize what's happening quick enough to actually take action and to have the Coast Guard or someone else intercept that boat and take action in the moment while it's happening. So we're starting to use generative AI for the first time to help think about this as a mission objective that you can plan and resource around. Um, you can actually request to have additional mapping data gathered in real time. You can request flyovers from drones where you have drone capabilities to go look at a spot in the ocean where you suspect this activity be happening. And then you can actually incorporate all of that data in real time to giving an operator or an analyst or someone else that's trying to tackle this problem new perspectives on how they could go about taking action on, on this mission objective. So we really see this as a great example of ways in which all forms of government and lots of different agencies within the federal government are going to be transformed by the capabilities of generative AI. And really going beyond just chat is how you talk to these models and thinking about maps and charts and graphs and other visual data to help you understand the sort of plans and actions you could be doing as a decision maker, especially where you have really critical time constraints on the sort of missions you're operating on. So we've also done work in conflict zones as well. And one of the great work that, that we've shared over the course of the year has been on the ground in Ukraine, where you know, a really critical need the morning after a Russian missile strike in a given city is to help relief crews get to infrastructure that needs to be repaired or to go inspect a road that's been damaged and help them route around damage as they're navigating through the city to be able to get on site to that location much quicker than they could before. And that ends up being a really difficult challenge given map data is often a very human intensive process to comb through today. So we've been harnessing generative AI models that we've built up to help relief crews understand almost in real time where damage has happened, where rooftops have been damaged, for example, on power plants or water facilities, and help the reef crews understand the right route to take to get there to take a look and inspect and maybe even do repairs in real time to help folks in Mariupol and other cities uh, navigate that. And, and it's a great example of where we're thinking about generative AI in the government space as being 
much more than just a chatbot or an agent that you're talking to, and really the ability to drive planning and decision-making in, in areas where sometimes human lives are at stake, sometimes our environment or natural world around us is at risk, really important social goods that we could cause through this technology that I, I don't think get talked often enough. When people think of generative AI, they usually think of the chatbot, and they're not thinking about all these other use cases we could be using for. But I think in the long run, these other use cases are actually gonna have a much bigger impact on the world that I live in, that my children live in, that, that maybe just the, the chat scenario. Well, thank you for clarifying the record for us and, and providing such important illustrations to help us understand some of the important use cases that you're focused on and what we can expect to see. I hate for this conversation to end. I'm learning so much and, and I, I'm really enjoying hearing the important work that you're doing, the deep thought you've put into responsible AI. But I realize we have to let you get back to designing and, and building more of these programs. And so I will ask you the final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you had a magic wand for one wish to help us achieve responsible artificial intelligence, what would that wish be? My one wish would be the ability for everyone that has some knowledge that's unique to them, some knowledge about human interactions or some area that they've studied or researched and they are the world's expert in, to understand the role that they can play right now by helping these models train better, understand the data better, understand how to talk to humans better, understand how to explain flaws or gaps in their decision or, or reasoning so that we all can leverage this technology and leverage all this human insight that's happening all around us right now at a core level of the technology that we're using. So my hope is over the next 10 years, 20 years, the world my daughter grows up in, she'll consider her core responsibility as a citizen, as a human being, to help these models get better and incorporate her unique insights into the model. And I think we're all just kind of waking up to this world where this is really one of the major contributions we're going to have as human beings in a role that we can all play, given we all have just different perspectives on the world around us. And hopefully you'll see much more diverse technologies result to that technology that better understands humans. And it feels much more robust to all the different ranges in which humans live in the world around them. And I'm hopeful that that, that feels like a much more sensitive technology to real human beings than, than maybe what we've seen you know, in the first generation of this technology. Thank you so much, Vijay, for sharing your insights and giving us a small view into the really important, interesting, fascinating work that you're engaged in and for helping to clarify the really important point that we all have a role to play in making sure that the AI future we are now a part of is responsible and safe. And so thank you for clarifying those important points. Thank you, Miriam. This has been a great conversation. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 